You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. scripture passage this morning is going to be uh, in Colossians 1. We've been studying the book of Colossians. So um, if you would, let's go ahead and turn there now. Our passage is going to be Colossians 1, 24, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 5. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, there should be some Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. And uh, you can take one of those Bibles and find our passage on page 924. So uh, as you're turning there, let's go ahead and stand one more time uh, as we read our passage, and then you can sit down for a little bit while, while the sermon is going. All right, Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen. You can take a seat. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to hear your word preached, We pray that you would give us humble and attentive hearts to receive it with joy. Grow our faith and point us to Jesus for your honor and glory, we pray. Amen. Martin Luther was condemned as a heretic and a public outlaw in 16th century Germany. He took a stand for the gospel and was hated and persecuted for it. And what happened? A reformation 
that recovered the gospel in a dying world and common access to the New Testament in the German language and after that, many others. Martin Luther's afflictions and suffering were not in vain. God meant to use them mightily to build up his church and bring the grace of the gospel to millions of people. Our sermon text this morning echoes this refrain of suffering and laboring for the sake of the church. And we should likewise be prepared and expect to suffer in order that God's church may flourish through our afflictions. As we look at Colossians 1, verse 24 through 2, 5, we're going to see three main points. First, we're going to look at what is the mystery of the gospel? Second, we'll look at what does it mean to labor for the gospel? And third, don't be deluded from the mystery of the gospel. But before we dive into the text, I want to briefly revisit and summarize some of the circumstances in which Colossians was written because it's going to help us better understand some of what Paul says in our passage. So remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. This is his first imprisonment in Rome, and he's under house arrest. Epaphras, who was the one who brought the gospel to Colossae, is with Paul and is giving him a report of how the Colossian church is doing and of a dangerous teaching that has cropped up. And we don't know exactly what the false teaching was, but we know some elements of it. We know it was... Uh, Jewish in nature, and it seemed to incorporate uh, rituals of Judaism, but also some uh, aspects of the surrounding pagan religions into something that was uh, kind of a syncretistic spirituality. And the Colossian church, being former pagans themselves, were probably kind of receptive and maybe vulnerable to this type of influence. And so Paul is writing to encourage the Colossians for their faithfulness to Christ, and to combat the falsehood. He wants to protect these young Colossian believers and keep them unhindered as they pursue Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, we'll jump into our first point. What is the mystery of the gospel? So throughout our passage, Paul mentions the mystery of the gospel multiple times. It's a central theme, and so we need to understand it, because if it remains a total mystery to us this morning, uh, we're not going to get very far. So let's look at what it means uh, and what Paul's referring to and why it matters to his audience and to us. Verses 26 and 27 mark the first time that Paul uses the word mystery in reference to the gospel in this letter. He writes, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul summarizes the mystery of the gospel here as Christ in you. And we can look to Ephesians 3.6 to further explain what, the, what makes this mystery of the gospel such a mystery. Ephesians 3.6 reads, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, this would have been astonishing 
to the people of the day. Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ Jesus. They're on equal footing before God. That's an incredible mystery. So when Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the emphasis is that Christ is in you Gentiles. You who used to be outside of God's covenant people. But in Christ, things have changed. Christ intends to put the riches of his glory on display in the salvation of the Gentiles. Look at how Paul describes this just a few verses earlier in uh, verses 21 and 22 of this same chapter. And you, Gentile Colossians, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is emphasizing again and again, the Gentiles are part of this plan of salvation. God didn't leave them to perish in their sin with no access to Christ. No, God meant to bring them into his fold and make them co-heirs with Christ and give them the fullness of his grace in the gospel. Through his blood, he has made peace between man and God and between Jew and Gentile. And friend, this mystery of the gospel extends to you too. More than anything else in the world, you need to know this good news of Jesus Christ and respond in repentant faith. You, just like all people, have sinned against God in thought and deed, by nature and by choice. You have earned the just wrath of God for your treason. Whether you see it that way or not, and you're on a collision course with God's wrath and eternal punishment in hell. But this holy God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to himself by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to take on true humanity, to live the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live, and to die the death that we deserved, taking the full force of God's judgment in our place. Christ has made atonement for us. And Jesus rose from the grave to prove that the debt owed to God has been paid in full and that he really was who he said he was. And he now commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in him alone for salvation. And this is the mystery of the gospel, that everyone may partake. No groups remain excluded. Gentiles could partake just as much as any Jew, and today, we too may partake in full, regardless of our politics, our race, our economic status, or our background. We may all be fellow heirs with Christ, and he is our hope of glory. But Paul doesn't just refer to the mystery of the gospel. He speaks about the hidden mystery of the gospel. Look back at Colossians 1 verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So the mystery was hidden, but now it's been revealed. What does this mean? Well, we right now stand on the side of the cross that we can look back and see a detailed picture of the gospel. We have the full and complete word of God, which describes and teaches and guides our explanation and understanding of the gospel. 
but it was not always so. For many ages and generations, the full canon of Scripture was not yet penned. It was not yet written down. God's revelation through history is progressive, meaning uh, more and more of the plan was revealed over time. But the full extent and nature of uh, God's plan to save lost human beings was hidden for much of history. Yet God did gradually lift the veil. So if we go way back, right after the fall in Genesis 3 at the very beginning, God promises to destroy Satan once and for all through one who would be the offspring of the woman. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God offers future hope here, but we don't yet have a name or description for that hope. The details remain hidden in the infinite wisdom and foreknowledge of God. But if we fast forward a few thousand years, we get a little bit more detail. Uh, Isaiah 53 4 through 6 reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Much of Isaiah's prophecy is describing God's chosen servant. And here in Isaiah 53, we see specifically the atoning nature of the servant's role in God's plan of redemption. He's going to bear the wrath of God in our place. So we can see that there is a progressive unveiling of God's plan, but here in Colossians, Paul tells us that the gospel has now been revealed fully. Well, how is that? If we look at Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, which we're, we're going to look at, uh, it's going to be preached a few weeks from now, uh, it makes it really plain. Colossians two thirteen, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there it is, right? The clouds have lifted. In Christ, the gospel is fully revealed. Jesus Christ is the promised Savior who crushed the power of Satan and the forces of darkness, who canceled the record of debt that stood against us, who triumphed over death in his resurrection from the dead. Friends, the gospel is loud and clear. There is nothing hidden anymore. And if you're hearing this message and yet you remain estranged from Christ, Know that the, the word of God and even this very sermon testify that you have heard the truth. It has not been withheld from you. And you need to respond in repentant faith in Christ where you face eternal condemnation. Jesus is our only hope of glory and eternal life with God in heaven. So now that we've taken some time, some, some time to explore the background and context of this 
hidden mystery, uh, let's move on to our second point. Labor for the mystery of the gospel. So we look back in Colossians 1 verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul's labors for the gospel have resulted in much suffering, which is really a guarantee of following Jesus. Paul tells Timothy in Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet here he is rejoicing in his suffering. He's living out what James tells us to do in James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Paul knows that beyond the horizon of his suffering awaits a greater measure of faith. He knows that the end result of godly suffering is glorious, that it builds up the church and it honors Jesus. The Colossians, however, they might not really recognize that yet. They might have a bit of a wrong idea that following Christ means to escape suffering and live the good life, and rather that suffering might mean that you have a wrong relationship with God. There are certainly people that uh, teach that today, right? Follow Jesus and you will be rich. Follow Jesus and you will be healthy. But Paul wants to steer them away from this false idea and show them suffering is both nourishing for the church and great cause for rejoicing. He wants them to know following Jesus will hurt, but it's worth it. One fantastic a uh, historical example of this is uh, a saint named Polycarp. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was an early church leader in the years following the death of the Apostles. Now, Polycarp did something really bad in the eyes of Rome. Okay? He committed a capital offense. He refused to worship the Roman emperor as a god by burning incense to him. And when the Romans uh, faced him with death by burning at the stake, this was his response. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment, that is prepared for the wicked. And Polycarp was indeed burned at the stake. And, and what irony, right? Incense was burned to the true God that day. It was the incense of Polycarp's living sacrifice, not fearing the temporary flames at the stake, and instead warning his persecutors of the eternal fire that awaits in hell. Not only was the early church nourished by Polycarp's life and teaching, but uh, even today the church continues to be strengthened by his example of standing firm even in the face of death. And here we are, right, 2,000 years later, reflecting on his suffering and service to the gospel. So I hope that helps paint a picture of what Paul means when he says he's rejoicing in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians, even though we, we never are told how specifically his sufferings impacted them. But if we continue reading, we're going to come to a rather strange phrase that at first glance is a bit difficult to understand. Paul writes back in uh, Colossians 1.24, 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What in the world does this mean? There are a lot of uh, interpretations of exactly what Paul is saying here, but I'm really going to just describe two of them this morning. The one that's definitely wrong, and then the one that is probably right. So when Paul says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, one might think that Paul's saying Christ's afflictions were maybe insufficient or wanting in some way. A mindset of, uh, you know, Christ, Christ started our salvation, but re- we really need to finish it. Friends, this is not the case. If you want evidence that Paul believed in the full sufficiency of Christ's afflictions to make atonement for us, read the rest of Colossians, read any other letter that Paul wrote, and you will see the sufficiency of Christ exalted over and over and over again. So we can be sure the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions are not in question here. Okay, then what what does this mean? Well, many commentators would agree that uh, this phrase is informed by what came immediately before, which is Paul's sufferings, and then what immediately follows, which is for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What's in view here is suffering for the sake of Christ to build up his church. So Paul uses this imagery of filling up as one would fill up a cup or a glass to describe his current sufferings for the church. He knows uh, in the scope of history, there's really a finite amount of suffering that's, that's going to happen, that Christ has appointed to take place before his return. And so in this sense, we can understand that what's lacking in Christ's afflictions is the suffering that remains to be endured by the church. So for every uh, affliction that Paul endures, another drop is added to that cup of total suffering. And Paul rejoices in this because it brings history one step closer to its end when Jesus will make all things right. And friends, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we too should rejoice. We are adding to that same cup and our suffering is not wasted. Jesus sees it and he's promised to bring it all to an end when he returns in glory. Paul goes on in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul reminds his audience, his ministry is from God. He didn't just make all this stuff up. God has entrusted him to steward the church as a minister. And Paul tells the Colossians that they specifically were to be the direct beneficiaries of God's uh, of Paul's God-given ministry, the stewardship uh, from God that was given to me for you. We know Paul didn't just minister to the Colossians, but we do see something really special here. God knows who his people are, and he gets the gospel to them. God saw fit to reach the Colossians with the gospel at this specific point in time, so he sent Epaphras, according to chapter 1, verse 7. And they received uh, even this epistle, which is one of the greatest letters ever written, in order that they might believe and be instructed in Christ. 
And Paul explains that his ministry to the Colossians is, is really large in scope. It's to make the Word of God fully known. That's, that's not just the basics, right? That's the fullness of the Word of God. He wants them to stand before God having lived godly lives marked by a thorough knowledge of God found in His Word. And here we come again to verses 26 and 27, which we uh, looked at previously. And we've already seen what Paul means by the mystery of the gospel, right? The, the, the Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ. And what he means when he says the mystery of the gospel was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed. But I want to draw your attention to one additional thing in these verses that we haven't looked at closely yet. So look at verse 27 again. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see a theme in there, right? Glory. Christ's glory and our glory in Christ. Friends, Jesus displays the riches of his glory in the salvation of people from all over. The gospel extends across all cultural and national borders to, receive, to redeem every single one of God's elect. The end goal is Christ's glory. And this is by no means to our detriment. We don't lose out when Christ is glorified. Rather, for all who are in Christ, Christ's glory is our glory. And when we read that Christ in us is the hope of glory, that, that hoping isn't like a fingers crossed kind of wishful thinking. It's an eager expectation. Hear Paul in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he famously continues in verse 38 that Jesse read earlier, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this hope of glory is sure because there is nothing in existence that can separate Christ's people from our Savior. Praise be to God. Let's continue on to verse 28. Him we proclaim. And I'll stop there because those three words are simple but really important for believers in general but also for teaching in the church. Him we proclaim. Paul emphasizes here that Jesus Christ is the one he and other gospel teachers proclaim. There is no other Savior, no other gospel. Jude comments on this in verse 4 of, of his letter, uh, criticizing false teachers who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Friends, there are indeed those who seek to pervert the grace of God and deny Jesus. These are not true teachers. These are heretics and wicked liars. Because proclaiming Jesus is essential. If anyone preaches a different gospel, they preach a different Jesus. This is the highest possible offense to God. It betrays what God has actually accomplished through Christ, and it really propagates information that leads people to condemnation. 
Jesus must be the one proclaimed. And indeed, he must be proclaimed. That's a, that's a public proclamation. That's what we try to do here every week. It's preaching. Jesus is the one that Paul and his co-laborers preach. Remember in the previous two verses, Paul's reminding the Colossians that the mystery of Christ has been revealed to his saints. And that part of Paul's mystery is to instruct the Colossians regarding this mystery. Well, here in verse 28, we have a concrete example of how that occurs. It's, it's the proclamation, the preaching of Christ. That's a very real way in which the mystery of the gospel was and is revealed to people who formerly did not know Christ. The public declaration of the gospel, the proclamation of the goodness of God towards sinners through Jesus. That's how we reveal the mystery of the gospel. And the words that follow in our passage form some of the most important principles for preaching that we find anywhere in the Bible. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul repeats the word everyone three times in this verse. It's, it's for everyone. Everyone needs the gospel. And this warning and teaching of God's word to everyone is to be carried out with all wisdom. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 3, which we're going to look at momentarily, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Paul's ministry is from Christ, and just as Christ is the source of all wisdom, his ministers preach with the wisdom that's found in him. So wise teaching revolves around Jesus looking to him as our hope and assurance, but also as an example, right, of gentleness and knowledge and conviction, admonishment, winsomeness, clarity, the list goes on, right? We, we want to teach people like Jesus did, taking our approach to teaching from our perfect teacher. And the end goal of teaching everyone in all wisdom is what? to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is not out to just make some quick converts and then move on to his next place. No, his aim is to nurture believers to full maturity. He knows the great joy in knowing God, and he wants this for other believers. At the same time, Paul's aware that his ministry is a stewardship that God gave to him, and he's going to give an account for that stewardship. So presenting other believers mature in Christ will be a testimony that Paul did his job, that he handled his ministry well. But what does this maturity in Christ really look like in our lives? Does the mature believer have every single verse of the Bible memorized? That would be impressive. Does the mature believer pray the longest or pray the fanciest prayers? Does it mean just being a Christian for the longest time? Or maybe giving the highest dollar amount to the church? According to Ephesians 4, spiritual maturity is being equipped for the work of ministry, being united in the faith and knowledge of Christ, speaking the truth in love, and not falling for deceitful doctrines and schemes that the world presents to us. Mature believers stand firm in the gospel and strive to look more and more like Jesus. And mature believers set a good example for
for living godly lives. They certainly aren't perfect, right? But they do give us a picture of what it means to be a godly spouse or a godly parent and raise our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord or in their jobs to work as unto the Lord in their careers, to give of their time and their treasure and, uh, you know, in the end, to how to die well with hope and assurance in their Savior. They show us what it looks like to suffer well, to love the Bible, to battle against sin, and to depend on God. These people are precious resources to the church, and we should be thankful for them and be imitating them as they imitate Christ. Now, I skipped over a word that I want to go back to because it's really important. It's the word warning. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Well, warning about what exactly? Well, it's warning about what we might call the bad news of the gospel, that everyone is by nature a child of wrath, that there are real consequences for sin, that hell is real, that judgment is coming. There's a lot of bad news for unrepentant sinners, and they need to be warned. Now, many of us might find this maybe to be the most uncomfortable part of proclaiming Christ in our evangelism. It's, it's certainly uncomfortable to preach from up here, right? Because we're always worried, how is this other person going to take it? How is this going to be received? But hear this. You show no Christian love if the gospel you share omits sin, wrath, and judgment. And you rob Christ of the glory that he deserves for atoning for our sins, for bearing that wrath, and for granting us pardon on Judgment Day. The extent of the danger sinners face before a holy God is what makes the reconciliation won by Christ so supremely good. So real warning must accompany the proclamation of Christ. Verse 29 concludes this first block of text. This morning where we read, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is Paul toiling for? Well, it's what we just talked about. It's the proclamation of Christ, to present everyone maturing Christ. And it's not easy, right? He uses the word struggling. This is hard. It's difficult. But the difficulty of Paul's task highlights all the more the great measure of energy that Christ supplies. Paul writes in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at the bottom of all of our efforts for him, and it is Christ in us that motivates us to godly service and striving for the sake of the gospel. So as we wrap up this first maybe lengthy point, what should we, what should we take away from this? We must labor diligently for the gospel. We should be giving our energy to God's service. And when we encounter trials and afflictions, we should rejoice. Because godly suffering is appointed by God for the sake of his church. And God uses it to build up his people and produce steadfastness. Following Jesus hurts, but it is worth it. So examine yourself here. Is your life consistent with a living sacrifice to God. Do you, do you take risks to share the gospel? Have you ever suffered for your allegiance to Jesus at work or in other relationships? 
Are you willing to go to prison, maybe even die, for the sake of Christ? Friends, affliction isn't fun, but it is a part of following Jesus. And after this sermon, we're going to sing uh, one of my favorite hymns. It's called Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. It challenges us to rejoice in our sufferings and look to Christ to supply the strength that we need. And he will. Next, remember these words from verse 28. Him we proclaim. We who know Jesus have been entrusted with the gospel and we will give an account for how we've stewarded this good news. So preach the gospel. Avail yourself of every opportunity and proclaim Christ with all wisdom. Importantly, don't withhold the gospel on the basis of any uh, personal biases that you may have. Paul says it's for everyone, so preach the gospel to everyone. And don't shrink away from the warnings of the gospel. They are necessary as part of our witness. Do you have relationships that can serve as inroads to the gospel at work? Are you going to be maybe visiting some unbelieving friends or family soon? Do you have any extra time where maybe you can go evangelize in public? Think about ways in which you can proclaim Christ even in the next week. Then come to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and then we can pray about those opportunities together as a church. We want to be doing that. We want to encourage one another in our evangelism. Let's continue now to our third and final point. Don't be deluded from the mystery of the gospel. Look at Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul wants the Colossians to understand that his strugglings are on their behalf, as well as believers in nearby Laodicea and everywhere else in the world. His labors are for the benefit of the church at large. This includes his direct audience, the Colossian church, but Uh, also the church in Laodicea, all believers everywhere in the most uh, general, ultimate sense. And so even if they've never seen Paul in person or met him, Paul views his toiling as building up the entire church. And in a general sense, Paul's enduring ridicule and physical harm and imprisonment. Eventually he endures death for the sake of spreading the gospel. So his struggle is very great, and he wants the Colossians to know about it, but to be encouraged by it. And then verse 2 illustrates the desired outcome of these efforts, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Paul first desires that the hearts of these believers would be encouraged. This word can also be translated as comforted or strengthened, and ultimately it points to the divine comfort that God gives through the saving power of the gospel. The next phrase, being knit together in love, offers a fundamental way in which Christians are encouraged in the gospel, and it's by the unity that exists in the family of Christ. All who are in Christ belong to the same heavenly family, adopted by God. In this salvation, we have a deep-rooted connection with all other believers And we directly enjoy that unity in local congregations like ours. It's the family of God where we are reminded of God's truth and his goodness. And where we're refined 
to conform to the image of Christ and to be encouraged by one another to hold fast to our hope. We also see in Colossians 2.2 that Paul aims for other believers to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. This is to be the ultimate outcome of their comfort in the gospel, that they have full conviction of its truthfulness and thus are fully assured of God's saving power in it. And isn't that incredible? We can have full assurance. When asked if we're going to heaven, we don't have to say, I sure hope so. A lot of people do. But we don't. No, our assurance is based on our knowledge of Christ as the perfect Savior for his people. It's Christ's absolute sufficiency that gives us absolute assurance. Are you assured in Christ this morning, in your understanding of him? That's not to say you never have any doubts, right? We all, we all do. But when you really consider Jesus, are you convinced that he is who he says he is? That he did what he came to do? And that he is able to save you to the uttermost? That is full assurance of understanding in Christ. And it is available to you. Furthermore, uh, Paul desires that they reach the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This idea of God's mystery links back to what we talked about in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And Paul revisits God's mystery here in chapter 2, summarizes it simply as Christ. The implication is this. To know God's mystery is to know Christ. He is the embodiment of God's mystery. He's the, the, the plan of salvation was accomplished through him. To be ignorant of Christ is to remain blind to God's mystery. And of course, Paul desperately desires for others to know Christ and to have a true knowledge of him, not just some man-made counterfeit. And so where do we find this true knowledge ultimately? We'll look at verse 3 in whom, in Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in order to have full assurance of understanding and true knowledge of God's mystery, we need look no further than Christ. He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, and to look anywhere else is folly. And even though Paul uses the word hidden here to describe the wisdom and knowledge to be found in Christ— we shouldn't understand that as like secret information that's being withheld from us, but rather information that's being stored up and kept in Christ. And we know he hasn't withheld anything from us, right? In Scripture, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Christ is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, and he has penned this infinite fountain of knowledge in his word through saints across the ages. Friends, remember, Jesus wrote the Bible. He wrote the historical books of the Old Testament. He wrote the prophets. He wrote the wisdom literature, the gospels, the epistles. He wrote the entire Bible. And 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through 17 assures us all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, Jesus has given us every bit of wisdom and knowledge we need in his word. Yet, 
Many claim to be the source of wisdom and knowledge, don't they? In our culture, we're a lot of times told that we ourselves are the source of wisdom and knowledge because truth's relative. We all live our own reality. And so truth depends on you individually. So if you want to know what's true, just look inside yourself. Follow your heart. This is what Paul says to those kinds of human teachings in uh, Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. False human teachings of spirituality have no power to really change people. And there are many such false assertions of wisdom and knowledge. But here, Paul, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ doesn't just, be, Christ doesn't just possess some wisdom, and then some other wisdom is like in Buddha, and then Muhammad has a little bit of wisdom. No, Christ has all of it. All here means all. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and you'll find them nowhere else. So as you go about your life, and maybe you hear or read something that sounds smart or wise, ask yourself, would Jesus agree with this? That's your test. If something is really wise, because wisdom finds its source in Christ. According to verse 4, Paul addresses encouragement in the gospel, unity in the church, and this true knowledge, of, true knowledge and wisdom found in Christ, in order that, so this is the reason, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. As we looked at briefly, there were some dangerous teachings in the Colossian church that threatened to lead people away from the true knowledge of the gospel. And then later in chapter 2, we we get some details regarding uh, Jewish and pagan rituals that were seeming to creep into the practice of the church. And if we remember uh, back to these last few sermons, there's been a lot of focus on the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. So that was likely combating uh, teaching that diminished Christ while exalting these human traditions and rituals. And we, we see similar things in our world all the time, right? Various groups and cults that hold tradition in the highest regard, yet diminish the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus are all over the place. Friends, don't be deluded. These doctrines lead only to destruction. Know the gospel, stand firm in it, and reject all the counterfeits as the demonic peddlings that they are, because that is what they are. Verse 5 then tells us that Paul is overseeing the church from afar. He cares deeply about the spiritual well-being of these believers in Colossae. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So even though Paul isn't physically there, he still wants to guard and take care of the Colossians as if he was. So Paul's imprisoned in Rome as he writes this. He's far away. Yet he is practicing the unity that's described at the beginning of the chapter by communicating his deep concern for the Colossians. They're, they're part of his family. 
And he specifically mentions rejoicing to see their good order. This is something that the church in Corinth was struggling with a little bit. Um, and orderliness in worship is a big theme of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. They were doing all sorts of uh, kind of weird and chaotic and unhelpful things that produced a false sense of spirituality. But they were really operating outside of the guidelines of what order in the church should look like. The believers in Colossae, however, seemed to be conducting themselves in a, a decent and orderly manner, and, um, and Paul's glad for this. And that's why we at this church put so much effort into careful planning of how things like the, the Sunday service here and other functions of the church operate, because orderliness in the church is good. It reflects the clear instruction for the church that we have in Scripture. It reflects the stable hope that we have in Christ. So all of these you know, frenzied spiritual episodes or maybe hypnotic trances of false religions, these have nothing to do with faithfulness to Christ. And they don't reflect the order that God desires for his church. Paul goes on to say that he rejoices in the firmness of the Colossians' faith in Christ. Even in the face of dangerous teaching, there is a steadfastness among the church at Colossae that gives Paul great encouragement. Where others might have crumbled and fallen, they remain upright, orderly, and firm in the faith. Yes, they need to have some error corrected, but they have a strong foundation, and that foundation is Christ. He is the head. He is the Colossians' hope of glory. He is the mystery of the gospel, and he is the source of all true wisdom and knowledge. It is in Christ that the Colossians stand firm, and so must we. So then, what should we, reading this in, in 2023, take from these five verses here? Well, we should look at Paul's example in encouraging other believers from afar. Paul's working hard for the expansion of the gospel. He's diligently praying for people he's never met. And he encourages the Colossians by letting them know that. He, he's telling them that he's praying for them. And we likewise should be working hard for the spread of the gospel. We should be regularly praying for other believers, even if we've never met them. And uh, indeed, this is, again, something we put into practice uh, both during our Sunday services when we uh, pray for persecuted believers around the world, and we also do this at our Wednesday night prayer meetings on a regular basis. We might not know all these people personally, but we can and should intercede for them in prayer. In this way, we can enjoy unity with other believers from afar and be confident God will answer our prayers for them according to his goodwill and purposes. Next, there are numerous groups or uh, maybe schools of thought in our day that claim to be wise and spiritual, but are not. There's a very uh, relevant example that seems to be gaining some popularity these days, and it's, it's, kind of, it's a type of Jewish mysticism. Uh, there are people who teach a lot like what seemed to be going on in Colossae, that uh, practicing Jewish festivals and rituals uh, can enhance our spirituality and offer us a deeper connection with God. Friends, don't be deluded by ideas or teachings that may sound good, but really have no foundation in Christ. These things are far from harmless. They, they may tickle our ears, but they threaten to distract us from the truth found in Christ. We've already been given 
all that we need for life and godliness in God's word. And we need look no further than Christ for true wisdom and true knowledge. We don't have to add anything special to our, to, to be spiritual. God has given us every good thing we could ever need. And yet, if we really examine ourselves, we, we can probably admit we're, we're often quick to look elsewhere, right? Because we take after our first parents, Adam and Eve, who uh, in the beginning, right, they were given boundless gifts. They had direct access to God. What did they do? They disobeyed God and ate of a fruit that, according to Genesis 3.6, was desired to make one wise. Friends, to look anywhere but Christ for wisdom is to eat poisoned fruit. The world's wisdom will not make you wise. It will make you a fool. So don't be deluded. Guard yourself from it and stand firm against it by clinging to Christ. Read your Bible often and enjoy the riches and treasures of wisdom uh, and knowledge found therein. So I'm going to end this sermon with one final mention of a key figure in church history, a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was an early church father who lived during the 4th century. He's remembered now for his steadfastness in battling against a really bad heresy called the Arian heresy, which asserted uh, in their famous one-liner that there was a time when the Son was not. So they were teaching that Jesus was a created being and denying his deity and uh, therefore denying the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. And people really liked this. It was a really treasured idea of, of the church in Athanasius' day. And uh, it, it was very dangerous because it threatened to plunge the church into error if it wasn't corrected. And Athanasius contended tirelessly in trying to refute this heresy. Uh, he continually asserted the deity of Christ and the triune God as essential to the Christian faith. His stance was actually so unpopular, he is remembered as Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Yet even with the world against him, Athanasius was not deluded into believing the heresy. He was harshly persecuted for his views. He spent about 22 years of his life in exile. He was often hunted by powerful opponents and subjected to political attacks but in the end, truth won out, and God used Athanasius mightily to rescue the church from error. Athanasius did suffer for Christ's body. He worked hard, he stewarded his ministry well, and he upheld the mystery of Christ. He remained steadfast for all those years, enduring the heated controversy and resisting enormous amounts of pressure from the world to just join in, give up join this heresy. But through it all, he held firm to the truthfulness of God's word and did not give in. Christ strengthened and protected him. And the most dangerous heresy in all of Christian history was defeated. Friends, may we too labor diligently for the mystery of the gospel and stand firm in it. Romans 12:1 and 2 reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that in Christ we have all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge and that you have given us access to Christ through the gospel. We praise you for preserving your word across the ages, even through the suffering of your people, in order that you might build up your church in faithfulness and steadfastness. Lord, help us to testify to the world that Christ is worth it. Keep us from error that might distract us from the truth of Christ and help us to look to you as our reward for standing firm. Amen. Please stand 